Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Luke chapter number 4. Would you join me in going to Luke chapter number 4? Uh, it's interesting to me, I, of course, God's called me to work with young people, and we've done that. My wife and I have done it since the mid-1980s. And uh, I know sometimes uh, these coming generation, millennials and Generation Z, sometimes they get, a, they get a pretty hard rap on them. But I remember back when I was growing up as the baby boomer, and I'm sure there's baby boomers out here. You know what they called our generation? They called our generation the me generation. How many remember the me generation? Okay, not too many. That's what we were called. And probably it was true. And uh, so every generation has its own uh, challenges. And, and this particular generation, and by the way, I guess we're now Generation Z. Uh, I will tell you, friends, I've come to the conclusion the rapture's got to be close because we're at Generation Z. What do you think? Okay, we've got to be close to the end. But anyway, uh, for Generation Z, uh, I've noticed in my working with young people in this particular day, there are a lot of challenges, and uh, many of them are just uh, the things that they've been handed. This generation has been handed. And yet I believe with all of my heart that God has an answer. I want us to look at just a simple text of Scripture, and I guess if you titled the message, it would simply be, Why Did Jesus Come? Why did Jesus come? Could I say this, and I think you would agree with me, if all Jesus did, and that's kind of funny to say it that way, but if all Jesus did was come to keep us out of hell, that had been unbelievable. That would have been just more than we deserve, obviously, and it would have been remarkable. But actually, Jesus came to do far more than that. He came to keep us out of hell, but there's a whole lot of other things He came to do. And I believe here in Luke chapter number 4, uh, what Jesus came to do is going to help us understand. I want to kind of take that and lay that over the needs of this particular generation, and really the needs of every generation. But in working with young people, my focus is largely on uh, college age, high school age, uh, young people, particularly in our culture today, and some of the unique needs they have. So let's begin looking at... Um, Luke chapter number 4, and some of you remember the scenario in the synagogue there, and he has handed the book of Isaiah there, it says in verse 17, in verse 18, he begins to read, and here's where he reads in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of our Lord. Now, I, I kind of see the first and the last of these six things Jesus came to do as kind of the bookends. First of all, it says He came to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, I want to explain that because if, um, if you're thinking that's financially poor, that means you're excluded because did you know the poorest person in this room lives better than 98% of all the people who have ever walked planet Earth? <laughs> so, they can't be talking about financially poor. So what's God talking about when He said He came to preach the gospel to the poor? Well, He came to preach the gospel, don't miss this, to spiritually impoverished people. And do you know what that means? It includes you. Every single one of us are absolutely spiritually impoverished, and I'm not just talking about before you got saved. 
Okay, can I say this carefully? Without Jesus, I'm talking about after you got saved, do you know how much spiritual strength you have in and of yourself without Jesus? Do you know how much you have even after you got saved? How much strength do you have spiritually without Jesus? And Jesus tells us, He says, without me, you can do anybody know? <laughs> Nothing. We don't have any. So when God says, he, uh, Jesus came and said, I came to preach the gospel of the poor, I, I, I certainly believe that's talking about the gospel of the sinner. We're spiritually impoverished, can't save ourselves, can't wash our sins away, can't keep ourselves out of judgment, can't get ourselves to heaven. Certainly that's the gospel. But I don't believe the gospel stops with that. I believe it starts with that. He also came to preach the good news to all of us that are saved, and that is the good news is this, that Jesus can enable us to do whatever His will is in our life. Although we're spiritually impoverished, he has got some good news. He can deliver us. He can strengthen us. He can enable us. He can do remarkable things. Okay, so that's the one bookend. The other one is to preach the acceptable year of our Lord, which I believe many are believing that's referring to the year of Jubilee, which of course when debts were forgiven and people were set free. And the truth is, friends, obviously it's salvation. We know that the sin debt is forgiven and we are set free from the, uh, the judgment and the penalty of sin. And of course the nuance is that that begins so that throughout your Christian life now there is a power to deliver you from the power of sin. Not just its penalty, but sin's power. And we call that sanctification. I don't want to get too technical here. But I kind of see those as bookends. And in the, in the middle here you have these four things Jesus came to do. And I want to apply them to this generation. It says that He came to heal the brokenhearted. Do you think people have broken hearts today? <laughs> you know, as a result of the pandemic and some of the lockdown, do you know domestic issues, I'm talking negative ones, have not gotten better, they've gotten worse? <laughs> and all the issues that are, go on in homes, they've only gotten worse. Working with young people, I've come to recognize that many young people, particularly even in our culture, and sometimes, yes, even those with come from a so-called Christian home, are dealing with a lot of issues in that home. A lot of what I would call dysfunction. And you know what happens when there's dysfunction? People get hurt. I'm actually talking to an auditorium of people who in a moment will relate with the fact that perhaps you've carried for years wounds that come out of your childhood. You've been hurt. You've been brokenhearted. Uh, I've certainly um, noticed over the years young people with what, what you might call father wounds. You know, several years ago, there was a large state penitentiary that decided they were going to, for Mother's Day, tell the inmates, we will give you a Mother's Day card. All you got to do is write on it and write the address on the envelope. We'll put the stamp on it. We'll send it. Well, it was a smashing success. Most of the inmates got, came by, got a Mother's Day card, wrote a note to mom, put an address on the envelope. The prison put a stamp on it and sent it off to those mothers. Well, it was such a success, they decided, let's do it again on Father's Day. They announced to all the inmates, you can get a Father's Day card, we'll do the same thing, put the address on it, write a note, we'll put the stamp on, send it off. Do you know how many inmates came by to get a Father's Day card? None. Father wounds are a very real thing. Let me just give you five that I've come to understand. The angry father. That's the father who said some very difficult things to a child. Perhaps you remember in your childhood angry things that were said, and they deeply wounded you. Things like you can't do anything right, you'll never amount to anything. Very difficult things, and these things happen far more than you realize. The angry father. 
And many times I try to tell young people this, and so if you had an angry father, do not be defined by the angry words of your father when his chain was being yanked by the devil. Be defined by the loving words of your heavenly father and the word of God. Don't let those angry words define who you are. Because there are a lot of young people who let the angry words of a father whose chain was being yanked by the devil define who they are. And Satan is laughing every time that happens. And it's tragic. The angry father is a real issue. Number two, the past, or the, well, let me just say the absent father. Let's go to the absent father. I have a dear friend of mine who got saved at 28, said, I gave 10 years of my life to Crystal Meth. He's now pastoring in Wisconsin. God saved him, or it's cleaned up his life. But he will tell you that when it all started, when he was five years old, his dad walked out the door. He said every time his dad came back, it only reinforced the rejection. He said many nights he cried himself to sleep, hoping daddy would come home, but he never did. And if he did, he didn't stay. He said, by the time I was 12 years old, he said, I turned to alcohol and I turned to marijuana to try to medicate the pain. It started a downward trend in his life. The absent father deeply wounds people, and the Bible talks about people are brokenhearted because the dad walked out of their life. And then there's the passive father. The passive father is there. He just doesn't parent. Isn't it interesting when you take father and mother and turn them into verbs, one is just procreation and one is real warm and fuzzy. The word mother is a very, mothering is a very warm word to us. But the idea that what we're talking about as a passive father is he may procreate, but he does not parent that child. He's there. I remember several years ago I was preaching in a church out west, and as I was preaching, I finished, I dealt with bitterness, I sat down, the pastor who was four years older than I got up, and I noticed he was, he was crying. He said, congregation, I've got to admit something to you. He said, I realized something this morning I've never realized in my entire life. He said, I have been bitter at my father. He said, my dad provided everything I needed. He went to work every, every day he needed to. He came home, and when he came home, he got his newspaper. This is so 60s, so 70s. But he got his newspaper, he got in front of the television, he turned on the television, and he said, my mom would give him a meal, but you did not bother him. He said, it never took me fishing. We never had any father-son activity. There was no relationship between me and my dad. He said, I realize now for years, he said, I've been bitter at my dad. Passive father. Then you have the permissive father. The permissive father would be the father who may be a decent father. He just never says no. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was probably such a father. A little bit of research I did on him. He had five kids. Those five kids represented, hang on, 19 marriages. Two of the people married to the Roosevelt children committed suicide after the marriages broke up. Uh, if you read about the Roosevelt children, the basically problem was their daddy never told them no. And to be honest with you, after World War II, when there was all those negotiations, I don't think he stole Stalin no either. But anyway, that's a little political, I know. But the point is, he was a permissive parent. And by the way, just so you know, so I'm not I'm being fair on both sides of the aisle, Ronald Reagan was not a very good parent either. It goes both sides. In fact, a, a book I read called First Dads had this premise. If you're a good president, you'll be a terrible father, but if you're a good father, you won't be that good of a president. Which means I'm not going to be president of the United States. But well, not just that reason, okay? I think being a good father is more important. But the point is simply this, that the permissive father is the father who uh, doesn't say no. And last of all, what we might call the demanding father. 
This is with the perfectionist father who never affirms, he never, he never encourages, he never, he never comes along and, and gives commendation to his children. He only corrects them. And as a result, they feel like they can't do anything right. John Quincy Adams um, was probably such a father. He had three children. The first one committed suicide in his 20s. The second one died of alcoholism in his early 30s. And the third one was an absolute jokester. His coping mechanism was humor, and he was never serious about anything. <laughs> Complete washout in life. And very clearly, when you read the parenting style of John Quincy Adams, it was a very perfectionist, demanding, little, if none, none, really no affirmation, no encouragement, only a pointing out when they were wrong. And they literally lived in fear of failing their father, which they often did. Now, I've only given you five, and there's much more I could say about it, and I didn't, don't uh, know to spend more time on it right now, time-wise, is really where we want to go, except to say that we're living in a culture where there are deep wounds, and there are also mother wounds. i got a whole session, but for time's sake, we won't go into mother wounds, but they're a very real thing as well. There's not as prevalent, but they're out there, and they're often very deep mother wounds are. Now, here's the point I'm making. Some people live with these woundings all their life long. But I got really good news, news for you. Nobody has to live with mother or father wounds. You know why? Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. He has come to heal the brokenhearted. Now that's, uh, this generation is known by brokenness. And the, the wonderful thing about God's people is we have the answer. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to heal brokenhearted people, people who've been wounded, people who've been hurt, and as a result, there's all kinds of baggage in their life, and we're going to talk about that baggage because as Jesus goes along, He begins to tell us a little bit more. Notice what He says here next. He says, to preach deliverance to the captive. So you know what often happens to broken people, people who are in pain? Do you know what people do who are, have pain? They medicate it. Now, how many out here would admit it, because I'm going to, that you have regular headaches? Can I see your hands, please? How many people are plagued by headaches? A few people are. Okay, you know what happens when I get a headache? I reach for extra strength, etc. I medicate the pain. You know why? Because I'd rather not have the pain. Okay. Now, we realize there's nothing really intrinsically wrong about taking the extra strength, etc. to make you feel better. We all will do stuff like that to help us with little aches and pains and things like that. But it becomes far greater when people turn to things that we might call, the world even calls them coping mechanisms. I believe 2 Corinthians chapter 10 calls them high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. There are things we turn to to try to cope with life. There are things we turn to to try to medicate the pain. There are things we turn to to try to bring some kind of fulfillment or meaning out of life, and we turn to them other than God. We turn to things other than God. And many of them, in and of themselves, uh, sometimes they're wrong, and in and of themselves, sometimes they're not, but they become that which becomes inordinate in our... For instance, technology today. Do you think kids today, with all the pain in their life, turn to technology? Okay, here's a kid. Who, um, think about this. I remember a few, it was a few months ago, I'm preaching and I'm dealing with some, some subject matter along this, and I started talking about video games, and I started talking about kids being addicted to video games, and they literally do not like the world they live in, so they escape to a virtual world. Do you think that happens today? In fact, uh, I, I tell young people this, you know you're addicted when you're doing some technology that really ought to be doing something else. So it'd be like this, if you're ever up at 2 a.m. doing video games, you're addicted. 
You know how I know that? Because at 2 a.m., you should be sleeping. What do you think? But I remember I was preaching on this, dealing with this particular issue, and I looked down in the front row, and there was, I think he was a bus kid, but he's sitting there engrossed in his little game. He's playing this game while I'm preaching. And I literally pointed him out. I said, now, folks, if you wonder what I'm talking about, I'm talking about this right here. And I pointed to this kid on the front row doing video games. Do you know what? He never, he absolutely never knew I used him as an illustration. The entire church is looking at this kid on the front doing his video games, and I'm explaining to him, this is what I'm talking about. Somebody addicted to technology, right there. And uh, again, technology in and of itself not as always as wrong, could be. Obviously, some video games are, uh, have uh, vile content, we understand that. But in and of itself, in its proper place, it may not be. But the point is, it gets pulled out and people become captive. You know what an addiction is? It's when you're, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing because you should be doing something else. You think housewives get addicted to social media? You see, many times people get addicted to technology, and it's not in and of itself wrong, but they begin, it's like a housewife who spends four hours on social media, and her husband comes home, the house is a mess, and there's no dinner, and whatever, whatever. Well, that seems to be, that probably be an addiction. What do you think? Didn't get a lot of amens on that, but that's okay. See, here's the point I want you to see, is we live in a world where people escape to technology and not just to technology, to all kinds of coping mechanisms. It used to be back in my day, you know what everybody was escaping to? Drugs. Remember that? Back, that was a big thing. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist today, it does. But drugs, alcohol, that was the big escape. But now, this is the big escape. But you know what the biggest one escape I found that this thing is? Pornography. 70% of all men who sit in evangelical churches on a Sunday morning have sexual addictions, 70%. And I will tell you, when you start at the top and move down age-wise, the percentages go up the younger you get. Now, I have no idea. I can't, I have no, that's a scientific survey I, uh, that I, I came across, that 70% one. Um, my others would be just anecdotal. I've been in some Christian schools where it was fairly low, and I was grateful for that. You could just tell. But I've been in others where it's, you know, there's, it's higher. I mean, low would be 50%. That's bad in and of itself. Pornographic addictions are a huge issue today. And many times they are fueled by people just trying to medicate the pain of life. It's many men, and it's not just men, by the way. They say 30% of all women that sit in the pews of evangelical churches on a Sunday morning are struggling with sexual addictions. My wife, and I, my wife has counseled many, uh, particularly young college graduates or high school students, young ladies who are uh, already addicted to looking at pornography. It's a, it's, a, it's a both gender issue. And I warn young people, and if I deal with the issue at all, and I try to warn them, and I put it this way, don't let curiosity kill the cat, because I will tell you that, uh, that I would rather, personally, I would rather some come up to, someone come up to any day with a loaded gun and stick it in my face and threaten to pull the trigger than I would somebody come up with a sensual image and put it in my face. You know why? Because all they can do with the gun is put me in heaven a little bit early. <laughs> But with that central image, they could destroy me, my wife, my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, the people I've touched in ministry. Are you tracking with me? And I will tell you, young person, if you, the greatest, I will tell you, the greatest protection from, from pornography, you know what it is? The greatest protection is innocence. So if you've got it, don't let it go. 
And I will tell you, if you're ever tempted, make a beeline to your dad or some godly man. If your dad's not godly, make a beeline to some man. And I'm telling you that loves God. And you tell him, hey, listen, I just got, I just was, somebody just tempted me looking at filth. And, and I'm telling you, you need to run to that. You know why many young men get hooked in it? Because they don't run to their dads. They don't. So these are huge issues today. And issues that burden me, but I will tell you, the one thing I love about millennials and Gen Zers is this. I believe with all my heart they want the real deal. They have a thirst for reality and authenticity. They want the real deal. Can I put it this way? Millennials and Gen Zers don't want to play church. They want to know God. They want the real deal. And I will tell you, as an older generation, I feel like, man, we have failed this generation, but we can't fail them any longer. We have got to point them to the fact you can have an authentic, real relationship with Jesus Christ and you don't have to turn to all these coping mechanisms because Jesus sets the captive free. And I say this to anybody in this room, I want to tell you, if you're a gentleman in this room and you are, find yourself in the web of pornography and you can't get out, I'm here to proclaim to you that Jesus can set you free. And it's not a pious platitude. There are truths that Jesus has given us and His very personage and walking with Him, there is a way out and there can be freedom. And I'm telling you, working with college kids, traveling with young men, that, that, uh, having young men travel with me in the last few decades, this issue is way up of what it was uh, several decades ago in their, in their lives. Many, in fact, many struggle with it. I would say in Bible college, young men studying for the ministry, that 90% of them struggle with pornography. I'd say 90%. I, I, I think I'm probably being too conservative with that. I'm, being honest, I'm just being honest with you. It's a huge issue today. And uh, I think we need to understand. But Jesus came to set the captive free. So you don't have to be in bondage to this. Now that brings us to another one. And again, I'm moving quickly here. But it says to preach deliverance to the captives, okay? So he set the, set the captive free. And then recovering of sight to the blind. You know what Satan loves to do? He wants us to not to see things as they really are. He wants us to be blind to reality, and He wants to be us to be deceived by this whole world. And uh, Jesus said, and I, again, all of this has nuances of salvation. I, I, I get that. But I'm trying to say, past salvation, there's more God wants to do in our Christian life, and He wants us to think correctly. Several years ago, when I was growing up, I remember my dad, I, from time to time, would talk by, uh, about a, a psychologist, sociologist in the 1930s by the name of Unwin, U-N-W-I-N. And he said he wrote a book, so I think it was called Sex and Culture or Sex and Civilization. I can't remember. He may have written several. And uh, I, I, uh, I wrote across a couple of articles that where he, Unwin, has been brought back up. I think one was in Christianity Today. And basically, Unwin was not a Christian. He had no bias toward Christianity at all. And he had a theory. His theory was this. His theory was, if a culture loosened its morality, from an art standpoint, it would flourish. That was his theory. So he studied 89 cultures to see if his theory was correct. And you know what he came to? He came to the exact opposite conclusion. He found that if you loosen the morality of a culture, within three generations the culture would cease to exist. It would be destroyed. And he laid out, 89 cultures is a lot of cultures. He laid out the first generation, 40 years, the next 40 years, and the next. So it would be 120 years till the culture would be destroyed. 
Now, if you take the 1970s as somewhere, of course, it probably started in the 60s, but 70s, somewhere where the first generation occurred, where the United States loosened up its morality, we would now be in the second generation. Now, it's interesting. One of the marks of the second generation of a culture that has loosened its morality is this. Facts no longer matter. It only matters how you feel. Does that sound familiar? The whole gender issue uh, comes out of that second generation that Unwin's talking about. There are, you don't have to read the whole book, there are articles where people have pretty much gone through his stuff because it's pretty dry from what I understand and they've laid out the characteristics and it's stunning. It's like you're reading the newspaper. This guy lived in the 1930s and he wasn't even saved. He was just an honest sociologist, psychologist. You know, that means if people today don't value facts, it only matters how they feel. You know what it needs? They need, they need Jesus to help them recover their sight. They need to see things clearly, see them like they are. See, that's what Jesus does. He recovers sight to the blind. People aren't seeing things correctly. And he, he biblically, through the, his word and through his Holy Spirit, he helps us see things as they are. So Jesus, my friend, has come to heal the brokenhearted. He's come to set the, the captives free, to deliver the captives. He's also come to recover sight to the blind, and more could be said there. Because another thing that happens when people get into addictions and people get into addictive behavior, they often begin to put up what we might call defense mechanisms. They try to package themselves as not having a problem. Listen, a man, in fact, it's interesting to me, a man who gets into looking at filth often, in fact, almost every time, he puts his hands up and will not let his wife get too close because he doesn't want her to find out. And so the wife over wonders, why can't I be close to my husband? They say often that children blame themselves, whose father's into pornography, they don't even know their dad's into it, but they blame themselves because they say, I can't get close to my dad, it must be my fault. And they point out that when a man gets right with his wife first about looking at filth, he then often needs to confess to his family because they need to understand the reason they can't get close to him. It's not their fault, it's his fault. He was putting up his hands, not letting his kids get too close because they don't want anybody to get too close because they might find out who I really am. So recovering a sight to the blind, the whole point is there's defense mechanisms, there's things you do to protect yourself because you don't want to be find out, found out. This is the person who gets into addictive behavior. They don't want to be found out. And there's so many, there are masks people put on and those masks are very much part of packaging yourself so people think you're something you're really not. Now Jesus came to help you get the masks off and get honest. You know what I love? Somebody gave me a definition of church, and I absolutely love this definition, and here it is. Church is where people ought to be able to hurt out loud. What do you think? Church is where you ought to be able to come and say to your Sunday school te uh, teacher and a group of men, hey, listen, I'm struggling with viewing uh, filth. I need your help. That's the place you ought to be able to come. You know what I believe the church is? The church is a hospital that loves to take patients and turn them into doctors. Every man in this room, I'm telling you right now, I want to cast vision for your life. Every man in this room who's struggling with pornography, I want to cast vision. Within two to three to maybe five years, God wants you to not only live in victory, but turn around and help other men out of the same mess you're in right now. 
And I will tell you something, friends, I'm seeing it happen. God is doing something. I'm convinced if we ever see revival in this country, one of it's going to be is God's people getting out of the moral filth and then turning around and helping other people out. I think it's a huge issue. Huge. And if you're into it, don't walk out of here and go out the wrong window because Satan likes to beat you up and make you feel like I'm defective, something's wrong with me. Well, we're all sinners, we get this. But if you're saved, there's something real good inside of you. His name is Jesus Christ. And many times people get into this whole thing, I'm defective, I could never, I can never be used of God. That is not true. If you're saved, you can be used of God. See, don't go down that road. There is a way out. Jesus came to set you free. He has come to get the mask off and for you to recover sight to the blind and see it like it is. And God wants to do remarkable things in your life. Which brings us to the last thing. And I'm just trying to lay it out. Uh, working with this generation, of course, it affects goes in your 20s and 30s, particularly millennials, all understand this with the technology boom and the accessibility of the Internet and the different things it's brought along to us. But one other thing it says here, it says he came to set at liberty them that are bruised. You find that a little strange? I do. The word bruised has the idea of crushed. Have you ever gotten your finger crushed or your thigh crushed or some part of your body crushed? And you know what you got? A bruise. So this is not a light bruise. This is a deep bruise. And the Bible says Jesus came to set at liberty them that are bruised. Why would they need to be set at liberty? Don't they need to be healed? Well, clearly they do. But here's the point. Un healed wounds put you in prison. Unhealed wounds put you in prison. Sometimes people make, have no connection between their addiction to looking at filth and the bitterness in their heart toward their father. They, they don't see the connection, but they're tied together like this. If you let Jesus take away your bitterness towards your dad and you begin to heal in your relationship towards your dad, whether he's dead or alive, you begin to heal on that thing, I guarantee you, you will find yourself being set free from the, the, the place you've gone to medicate the pain. See, that's what Jesus does. He sets at liberty those that are crushed, those that are bruised. Now, I've thrown a lot out here, and sometimes I feel like I'm just throwing out a great grenade, but i got to put some balm on the deal because I want you to understand that Jesus came to fix all this that we've talked about. And let me give just a quick illustration. Probably, I guess, a year and a half ago, I was preaching at a conference, and I was, I've been on a journey, and I was talking about some of the things I've talked to you about. And it was an hour and a half, so it was a lot more extensive. And I was dealing with some of these issues and the problems we're facing today. And afterwards, a, a preacher, I'm guessing probably in his 30s, young 30s, he, he came to me, he was troubled. He said, Brother Van Gelderen, can I talk to you? And I could tell he was not only troubled, he wasn't happy. He sat down and said, Brother Van Gelderen, I didn't come here for this. He said, all this father stuff, he said, I don't know what to think. I did not come here for this. So I said, well, tell me about your father. He said, I left when, he left when I was very young. I haven't seen him in decades. He said, after that, he said, I had many abusive stepfathers. So my next comment was, I said, do you pray for your father and stepfathers? I will never forget his reaction. He's a good man, but here's his reaction. Why would I pray for that man? He forgot about his stepfather and went right to his dad. He said, why would I pray for that man? He walked out of my life. I owe him nothing. 
So I looked at him and I said, well, the reason you pray for them is because God tells you to. Because Matthew tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, pray for them which despitefully use you. And it sounds to me like you've been despitefully used. So I said, do you pray for your father? He looked like he'd been hit with sledgehammer. And I will tell you something, friends. This is a sledgehammer <laughs> in a good way. And he looked at me and he told me later, we didn't talk much longer. It was a really short counseling session. I'm not real good long counseling. Don't come to me for long counseling. We'll just cut straight, go to other people who have a better gift than I do. That's just not my gift. I'll do anything I can to help you, but that's just not my gift. And he left and he told me it took him to one in the morning. And at one o'clock in the morning, he said this, God, I'll pray for my father. He fought that long. He said, the moment he said, I would pray for my father, he said, God told him something else. Find him. And he began to wrestle with God again. Have you ever wrestled with God? Have, you know what I've learned about wrestling with God? You always lose. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> so about 7 in the morning, he finally gets on his social media, he types in his dad's name, there it is, comes right up. God has a sense of humor, first guy up. His dad hadn't seen him in three, uh, yeah, about three decades. He messages his dad. His dad messages him back. He almost immediately, he comes to the conference and says, Brother Van Gelder, I can't look at it yet. I have not been able to look at it. Of course, sometimes it can be kind of rough. He ended up looking at it. His dad had a very cordial response. He, began a, he has begun a relationship with his father. During COVID, his father now tunes in and watches his preaching. And I was talking to him a couple months after that situation, just checking up on him. And he, says, he said something to me because he'd been in contact with his dad. He said, Brother Van Gelder, I've taken my dad off to the despitefully use you list and I've put him on the people I love. And recently, he said it was kind of awkward, but he said, I said, Dad, I just want to tell you that I love you. He said it was the first time in my life I ever told my birth dad I loved him. And since then, he's told me, my dad has told me that back. And I will tell you, friends, this is what I want you to understand. I'm listening to him, this dear friend of mine. We're talking about what his journey and his contacting his dad and establishing a relationship and trying to win him to Jesus. And I'll never forget, he said something to me that absolutely epitomizes that Jesus came to set the, those free, to set at liberty, those that are bruised. And I'll never forget his words to me as we were winding up the conversation. He said, Brother Van Gelder, he said, I am free. He said, for the first time in my life, I'm free. Wow, isn't that great? Jesus has come to set at liberty them that are bruised. I'm telling you, Jesus came to do big stuff. <laughs> You're brokenhearted. He wants to heal those father wounds, those mother wounds. Jesus wants to set you free from addictive behavior you turn to to try to medicate the pain. He wants to set you free. Jesus wants you to recover sight to the blind. He wants you to see things biblically. He wants all that wrong thinking cleaned out, all those masks pulled off, all those defense mechanisms, and the hands down and open yourself up for people to know you as you are and to love you as you are. That's what the church is all about. And Jesus wants you to set at liberty those of you that are crushed and bruised. That's what he wants us to do. Uh, what's to do in all of our lives? I don't know about you, but I'm telling you, friends, We've got a God that wants every single one of us, if not tonight, soon, as a result of what He can do in our lives, to say, I'm free. I'm free. 
Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.